It was founded with the idea that there's so much waste in healthcare. If you go into a surgical suite and you see they bring in all the surgical instruments and they open up the package and they only use some of them and, and they say this is a disposed, these are disposables, but they don't use the rest of them. They just throw them all in the garbage and they end up in landfill. This Week in Health Innovation is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand narrative alive via original, value-added, digitally curated content for omni-channel distribution and engagement. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. And welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media and the producer and host of the show. On today's episode, my guest is colleague and friend, Patricia Sauber, MD, MBA, a thought leader, influencer, senior advisor, and seasoned medical executive who is also the founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of The Doctor Weighs In, a leading online health and wellness information platform. She is a recognized voice in the digital health space, spotlighted by LinkedIn in their rarefied top voices in healthcare for both 2017 and 2018. Dr. Salber trained in and practiced internal and emergency medicine, served as a senior physician executive at Kaiser Permanente and Blue Shield Health, and is a highly sought-after healthcare consultant. She is the co-author of Connected Health, Improving Care, Safety, and Efficiency with Wearables and IoT Solutions, an advisory board member at a number of digital health startups, two of which have been acquired, and the author of numerous peer-reviewed medical journals and articles in the lay press. Dr. Salber is a regular podcaster at the American Journal of Managed Care and a member of the Association of Healthcare Journalists, who's featured as a medical guest on a number of news programs, including CNN and the Fox News Channel. Pat, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Greg. Okay, for those of you who are not following you, whether you're on LinkedIn, Twitter, or blogging, and so on and so forth, tell the audience who may not know who you are, uh, who's Pat Salber? So, well, that's interesting. So, Pat Salber's been many different things over the years. Um, the core of me, besides my role in, in my family and my uh, community, is that, um, is that I'm a physician and I love medicine. And I've worked in almost every area of medicine. But for the last five years, I've been doing health journalism, taking a, a website that I started in 2005 as a diet and exercise or diet and weight loss blog and have morphed into a multi-authored global health information site. So that's really what I do full-time now. I have lots of stories that uh, now nowadays are primarily written by physicians and other health practitioners, but some by expert freelancers. And we're really trying to up the game by having all the stories reviewed by doctors and fact-checked and all the other kinds of things that you want to do to send a message to the reader that if you're reading something about health on The Doctor Weighs In, you can trust it. That's really what we're aiming for. And what about your background in medicine? So I, I went to medical school at UCSF, which is not very far from where I live now in Marin County, California. 
And then I trained there in internal medicine and endocrinology before I discovered um, what was another one of my passions, which was emergency medicine that I practiced for a number of years before getting a chance to work for Kaiser Permanente nationally. First is uh, I was the national director working with employer groups, large employer groups that bought insurance from Kaiser. And then I spent six years at General Motors as a Kaiser employee, helping them with their healthcare strategy. And that was that was pre-bankruptcy. And I think I think actually the bankruptcy helped them more than I did because they gave health away to the union instead of keeping it for themselves. <laughs> so and then I've spent a lot of time in working in digital health, which is, I think, very interesting field. And as I said, uh, gradually became involved in telling the stories of healthcare as opposed to um, being a story in healthcare. Let me ask you, how did you find that transition from clinical medicine to essentially leadership at the medical administration level? Well, for me, it was easy because I think it was, I think I'd done emergency medicine for 18 years. That was 18 years of nights and weekends. And the weekends never bothered me, but I have a very strong daytime circadian rhythm. So every night was painful. I would, I would have anxiety about it for the three days before the night, and then I'd be tired for the three days after the night. And then the next week started again. So, so when I had this opportunity to go into the business side of healthcare for a big organization that I respected, I, um, I jumped at it. And I, and I I didn't miss the clinical practice, although I still there's so many things about medicine, the problem solving, you know, the excitement, helping people, all those kinds of things that I still love. But I it it was not that hard of a transition for me. Just the scheduling alone was probably a net benefit. Yeah, just just the nights, just making the nights go away. Right, little uh, <laughs> quality of life contribution. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, so you're 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 big in the social space. What platforms are you mostly um, active in? So that's interesting. I I would say the platform that works the best for me is LinkedIn because we. You know, I, I love a more sophisticated conversation, you know, a conversation you, you can, even if I'm not posting our own stories on LinkedIn, I'm posting things that I find that are really interesting that are going on in healthcare, a lot of times in the policy arena, but sometimes in, in the innovation space. And, and you can actually have pretty interesting conversations with people. And I also find what I really like about LinkedIn is I've had a paid subscription for a long time. So I basically can connect with anybody that I want anytime. And people are pretty good about connecting back. So I've made a lot of new acquaintances, some friends through LinkedIn, and that works really, really well for me. But I also use Twitter a lot. I like Twitter for, you know, short zingers. It's really great if you want to put yourself at risk by making political comments, <laughs> you know, which I occasionally do, uh, trying to refrain myself from that. And then I use Facebook really mainly to promote our stories. And Instagram, Instagram has not been a great platform for us, but we're thinking about how we can revise our approach to that. And if you're going to ask me about Clubhouse, no, I don't do Clubhouse, but mm -hmm. I... I did 
I did sign up with our mutual friend, um, Alex Fair's Med Starter Clubhouse, which seems to be going 24 hours a day. I mean, <laughs> getting from, so, and so that's enough of Clubhouse for me. Right. I, I mentioned to Alex that it kind of felt like the early days of Twitter in, in as much as it was the matrix. Because once you got in there, you were sucked in and 10 hours later, you lift your head up and go, oh, my God, where did time I, I know. It's totally amazing. And he's <laughs> yeah. picked me to join a couple of right. times in both times. I was in a car on my way to Stanford for a, for a doctor's <laughs> appointment. Right, so, right. So uh, the latest, greatest clubhouse. So the principal asset is what? The blog? What's it called? Yeah, the principal asset is really the blog, The Doctor Weighs In. So it's thedoctorweighsin.com. And as I said, it's 15 years old, 16 years old, actually and um, has a uh, global audience, although most of our traffic is in the US. And again, we get a lot of our stories from doctors. We, a lot of the, every doctor in the world now has a press agent. I, I guess almost everybody in the world seems to have a PR agent. So we get pinged by a lot of PR agents with some very interesting stories about innovations and so forth. And we usually write them back and say, well, you know, do you have a doctor or is this, you know, chief medical officer or chief scientific officer, would they be willing to write a story? So we get a lot of very interesting stories that way. So you mentioned you sort of then pivoted to digital health uh, after the medical director stuff. What was that? What did that entail? And what was that like? Well, it, it, it did have me start a company called Health Tech Hatch that didn't make it. So, and I folded that into the Dr. Ways in, but- uh, And that was in the crowdsourcing space, no? That was in the crowdsourcing space. So what I, what I really liked about digital health, I mean, you know, the promise, we're starting to see delivery on the promise, right? I mean, telemedicine was one of the things that we saw in the digital health space. And so I spent a lot of time going to all the conferences, you know, a lot of them were out here in the Bay Area, Health 2.0 before it got acquired, and other conferences, the Consumer Electronics Show, just all, all kinds of places. So I really like telling the story of these kinds of health innovations as, as we've evolved, as the Dr. Ways In has evolved, we've, we still do digital health stories, but we also do just a lot of straight up health information stories like what's up with thyroid eye disease, or, you know, we haven't done, we didn't do a lot of timely COVID stories because the science was moving too fast for a site like ours. You know, you, you could write a story the next day, it would be out of date. So we, what our coverage of COVID was more around things that didn't change, like the impact of, of human behavior on COVID. You know, that's something that we're still dealing with and other stories like that, you know, impact on mental health and so forth. Just imagine for a moment, with respect to the more physician now contribution to the content on the Dr. Ways In website or blog, what would a word cloud look like? What would be the darkest, most bold words in that word cloud of, of what's the content discussed right now on, on, um, on the Dr. Ways In? Oh, that's interesting. I, I, would, I would say it would probably say mental health and addiction. We have a lot of stories on mental health and addiction, but we have such a variety that the word cloud probably wouldn't have, it, it probably would have a lot of words that were about the same density as opposed to having, you know, two or three words that were really dark and big because that was what most of the content was about. So where would pandemic or COVID be? COVID would be probably the same size as everything else. I mean, oh, really? we, 
Yeah, we, as I mentioned, we covered the pandemic, but we, I initially tried uh, to do a newsletter where I kept up with all the things that were changing and it was really impossible. And, and, you know, if you, if you're like me and you watch the news all the time, although a lot less now, (laughs) you can see that they used to have the, you know, all these experts on there and they would all be saying things slightly different because, because it was a pandemic, which means it was a novel virus, which means we didn't know anything about it. So what we knew, we knew from looking back from, from observation, but as the number of observations expanded, you, you know, then you had, to, you had to change your approach or you had to change your ideas about what was, what was driving the pandemic. And I think that's been frustrating for some people who are, who are used to you know, going to see a doctor and the doctor says, you have blah, blah, and here's your prescription. You know, it hasn't been that way in the pandemic. There's just so many, there have been so many unknowns, some of which we know now, but there's still a lot of unknowns. I, well, I'll tell you, I mean, I've attended the American Telemedicine Association annual conference and for a number of years, and from the inception of that uh, association, they've been on a telehealth telemedicine has been on a sort of really slow uptake bake COVID has actually exploded that we're recording right now on zoom and zoom if it isn't already it shortly will become what a verb like google <laughs> yeah absolutely so i joined i joined zoom before yeah. uh, before the pandemic so luckily i was already pretty good at it but right. we've had so many Zoom birthdays and Zoom. We did a Zoom Seder this year. You know, we do Zoom right. cocktail parties. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so it, it, I mean, it's amazing. And I, I actually think the person who founded um, Eric One, I think his name is, who founded Zoom, that he deserves every single penny that he got because yeah. he kept us connected. Absolutely, right place, right time, right vision. So yeah. what I know about you, Pat, is. Um, you're a physician, you're an accomplished leader on the uh, admin side, you're a thought leader, you can, you're a convener of other thought leaders, um, and you're a mission-driven individual. Uh, and, and part of that was reflected in the, I don't know if it's an NGO, but it's a nonprofit called MedShare. Talk a little bit about MedShare, and then let's lead into the relevance of what MedShare is doing in terms of both COVID and essentially what's happening in India right now. Sure. So, so MedShare has been around 23 years, which is, you know, a nice long time for a nonprofit. And, and I'm, I'm sure if you were in India, you would consider us an NGO. It was founded with the idea that there's so much waste in healthcare. If you go into a surgical suite and you see they bring in all the surgical instruments and they open up the package and they only use some of them and they say this is a disposed, these are disposables, but they don't use the rest of them. They just throw them all in the garbage and they end up in landfill. So the idea behind MedShare, and it's only on medical equipment and supplies, not drugs, uh, was to collect those uh, wasted materials that are still good. They're not expired. They're not things that people wouldn't use anyway. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of that where, where companies would donate equipment to the developing world, but but the stuff they donated, nobody can use. Once I saw the biggest NG tube uh, or EN, uh, intubating tube that I'd ever seen when I visited a clinic in El Salvador, you know, I mean, nobody was going to use it in the U.S. And guess what? Nobody used it in El Salvador. So we don't do that. We collect the materials and we allow people to order what they need. 
And increasingly, um, in addition to collecting supplies from hospitals, we work directly with manufacturers. So I've been involved with MedTrack, I can't believe it, nine years now, mainly on the Western Region Council, but I joined the Board of Trustees for the national organizations located in Atlanta um, about two years ago. And I chair their development committee, which means when Pat calls, she's going to ask you for some money. <laughs> <laughs> but be forewarned. Be forewarned. Yeah. <laughs> and that, by the way, that's www.medshare.org, correct? Yes. Okay, great. What's happening now with respect to uh, clearly a lot of surplus? And just for maybe people to get an image about that, just think of how much good food is thrown away because it's uh, either not consumed the day it was prepared perfectly okay in most cases. Tons of surplus stuff that just gets wasted. So think about it in the medical industry. It's kind of on steroids. And if you're just tuning into This Week in Health Innovation, my guest is physician executive and digital health thought leader, Patricia Sauber, MD, MBA, founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of the Dr. Ways In. Yeah. And, and by the way, we do respect the use by date, so we don't we don't ship anything that's outdated, whether you believe in those dates or not. We, that's a you know just something that we don't do. We everything is still going to have a a use by date that's good at least six months into the future. We had a very interesting run during the pandemic because I told you our model. Our model had been collect all these supplies. We would take them to the warehouse, we'd barcode them, we'd box them up, people would order them, and then we'd put them on a container, we'd raise money to pay to ship the container, and then, you know, a container or two would go to whatever location. And that was our model for many years. And then at the beginning of the pandemic, it became clear when we could first see that there was something awful going on in China, in Wuhan. And by the way, Wuhan was where a lot of PPE was made. We actually ended up shipping because we had a huge stock of PPE, gowns and masks and gloves, and we shipped to Wuhan. You know, if I tell people that now, they'd say, well, how could you do that? Well, you have to remember, this was the beginning of the pandemic, and we all believed that if we could contain this disease now when it was small and just in one country, that that would be a very good thing. It would have been a very good thing. But we had to we had to really pivot because our old model of shipping containers didn't really meet the needs. And because we had such a huge supply of uh, PPE really pre-positioned before the pandemic, we started shipping to safety net clinics. And out here in California, Blue Shield of California actually partnered with us to be able to make this PPE available. We also, we did it in, uh, in other areas, Atlanta in particular. And, and so that was really different from, uh, for us to kind of pivot from being primarily uh, an organization that was supplying the developing world to supplying the U.S. I guess you could say we were supplying the developing world part of the U.S. that, that had these huge needs. And, um, and, that, and that was big for us. We had a very, very uh, big and successful year in, year in terms of not only funds rates, but more importantly, in terms of the number of people that we served. And we've served about uh, 20 million people. I think it's 20 million people across the globe over the years in 103 different countries. And as I mentioned, increasingly looking at what we can do in the US, but to bring us up to date. So now we have India and what's going on in India is a humanitarian catastrophe of, of unbelievable proportions. I mean, when you hear about people 
dying in the hospital because they don't have oxygen. Can you think of anything worse than that for the patient, of course, but for their family and, and, and for the people who are taking care of them? I mean, this has just been devastating. If you've seen interviews with the doctors and watch it. nurses. You, you can't watch it. It's... You can't watch it. It's just, it's horrible. So we had not really served India. It had not been one of the countries we served in the past, in part because they have prided themselves on not, you know, they're a manufacturing country, right? They, they have big drug manufacturing. They make things in India. And the manufacturing countries like uh, China and India have been less receptive to the kind of model that we have. They, they, they haven't really wanted kind of this outside charitable contribution. So we had to, in order to respond to what's going on in India, we had to do a number of things. And the very first thing that you have to do is you have to be sure that you can get the goods into the country. Well, you have to get the goods, but that hasn't been hard for us because that's what we do. You know, we've had a lot of donations of the equipment and they primarily need things related to delivery of oxygen, oxygen concentrators, ventilators, tubing, masks, pulse ox, all that kind of stuff. But then you have to get it into the country. And one of the barriers that India has had is that they have big duties and taxes. So you know, it, it like doubles the, the, the cost. I don't know if it doubles exactly the right number, but it really makes it so much more costly for us to get materials in there. And we have been able to get agreement. And I think, I think the global community now has agreement that they will waive those duties and taxes on these supplies right now in, you know, as, as, as they're going through this horrible cat catastrophe. But then the next piece that I think people don't think about, they think, oh, okay, I'll put it on a plane, I'll send it to India, and good, then the people have it. Well, there's this whole logistical problem of how do you get it from the airport into, into the hospitals or into the hands of the people that need it. And, and, and that's where we've had to do a little more work. So we initially partnered with the Indian Red Cross as have a lot of, if you've seen any of the news stories, you, you know that a number of the organizations who are doing this work have, have partnered with them. But for whatever reason, it, it, the, the materials are not getting where they need to be. So I, I don't know if that's perhaps the capacity of the Indian Red Cross has been exceeded by you know, the volume of the donations or the who demand. knows. Yeah, who knows what it is. So we have now just established a partnership with a, with a Indian NGO called SEWA, S-E-W-A International. And they, and they already have an in-country distribution network. So they, they already are getting supplies themselves and they are able to get them out into the hospitals, into the communities beyond Delhi, into the other areas that are being impacted by the pandemic. And interestingly, Siwa International partners with the UPS Foundation, as do we. UPS has been a great partner for MedShare and has provided a lot of pro bono transportation of, of goods, which has been really great. So that's where we're at right now that we, we haven't actually distributed anything yet because the Siwa partnership is relatively new, but that should be coming down the pike soon. 
And, and so then what we need is some financial support from viewers like you, as they say, in terms of donations, both from, uh, we get our funding from corporations, from foundations, from individuals, and, and for individuals who are listening, who, who are frustrated about feeling kind of powerless about what they can do about the situation in India, you can go over and, and donate medshare.org medshare.org and there's a, a button on on the homepage that says um, India response and you can and you can donate and help us do this work so what's the biggest need uh, is it supply chain procurement is it money is it I mean are is it on the ground volunteers uh, or channel partners well it takes all of it right so if we don't have supplies we can't ship it but if we have supplies and we can't transport it because it's too expensive, um, or we don't have the relationships, then it stays in the US. If we get it to India and we don't have distribution partners, well, it sits at, at best, it's sitting in a warehouse somewhere in the airport. Mm -hmm. And at worst, it could leak into the black market. Okay. So are you pretty good on the supply side? And the priority now is raising money? I would say the priority now is two things. One is it's getting the SIWA partnership up and running so that we're actually delivering the goods that we have and then simultaneously raising money because we're a nonprofit, but that doesn't mean that you can work for free. We, you know, we have to pay our staff and, um, you know, get the work done. So we, we actually need both of those things. We need donations and we need our partnership with CWET to work. And I'm hoping, although we won't know until we see how this plays out, that if we establish this relationship with Siwa, it may mean that we would be able to do work in India even after this immediate crisis is over. Because we're not primarily a disaster relief organization. That's one of the things we do, but we support maternal and child health. We support primary care. We actually have a biomedical training program. So if we ship you a ventilator and some part goes bad or something goes wrong, chances are you won't have any staff to fix it because they don't know how because they've never had that ventilator before. So we actually will either fly somebody over and train, but increasingly, obviously, during the pandemic, one of our people got stuck. I forget where he was. I think he got stuck in Nigeria at the start of the pandemic. Um, but increasingly, we can do this, this kind of stuff online. But that's a, a very important component of you don't want to just send a ventilator and let it rot. You want to send a ventilator and keep its life going for years and years and years because people know how to fix it. And what's your role with MedShare? So I am on the board of trustees and I also chair the development committee, as I mentioned, and I have, I'm chairing the, what we, we have a council in the West. We have four regions and I chair the volunteer group of outside people. It's called the Western Region Council. I chair that in the West. So I'm busy. You're busy, no doubt. <laughs> So, but it's a good organization. I have to say, one of the reasons why I do all this work for MedShare is because, you know, I know that when people make donations to MedShare and when people put work into it, that it's actually going to the end user. That this is all about, are we changing the lives of people in the communities that we serve? If, if I were to say, what are your last words? Was, was that something you could speak to? Sure. Well, first, Greg, I want to thank you for inviting me. We used to be podcast buddies like 150 years ago. <laughs> <on live. laughs> 
and um, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. And I uh, thank you for giving me a chance to talk about MedShare and their work they're doing. And to um, I guess my very last words would be to ask them to please donate at MedShare.org. Well, there you have it. Well, thanks, Pat. Thanks for your commitment to this space. Best of luck, and let's let's hope people who are listening uh, sort of feel the um, the calling. And that is the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank Patricia Salber, MD, MBA, founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of the Dr. Ways In for her time and insights today. For more information on Dr. Salber's work, go to www.thedrwaysin.com or follow her on Twitter by at DocWaysIn. And for more information on MedShare's vital work to alleviate the suffering in India or learn how you can support the global effort to mitigate this immense human tragedy, go to www.medshare.org and follow them on Twitter via at MedShare. And finally, if you're enjoying our work here at This Week in Health Innovation, please do subscribe to our channel on the podcast platform of your choice. And do follow me on Twitter via at Greg, G-R-E-G-G, Masters M-P-H. Bye now. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.